Great, we are in the second week of a, a sermon series titled, What is the Church? What are we? What is the church? And uh, we're going to be guided by three scripture passages this morning. The first two uh, are the very same passages that we looked at last week, and there's another third passage we're also going to be looking at today. If you missed last week's sermon, I would really encourage you to go to our YouTube channel and and, uh, please do give it a listen. This is uh, a very important sermon series that we're doing. I personally feel this is going to be one of the most important sermon series for us for the next 10 years. That's how important I feel it is. So please do listen to it if you missed last week's sermon. Uh, I've invited Rebecca to read uh, the three portions of scripture for us. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly, I say to you, Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. So those who received his word were baptized, and they were added that day about 3,000 souls. 42 And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Amen. This is the word uh, of the Lord. Uh, Would you join with me as we pray a very simple and profound prayer? We're going to be praying the same prayer through every sermon uh, in this series. Our Heavenly Father, by your Holy Spirit... Would you illuminate your word into our hearts that we may wholly see and wholly align with our Lord Jesus Christ's desire and design for his church. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Uh, If you ask the average Christian, what is the church? He or she is very likely going to Uh, Refer to Matthew chapter 18, verse 20, and say, Where two or three are gathered in the name of Christ, 
uh, there he is in our midst. And we'll say that is the church. So if, you, if you're gathering with two or three or more people in a coffee shop uh, in the name of Jesus, that is the church. If two or three gather in your home in the name of Jesus, that is the church. So this, I suspect, is the most common, the most basic understanding of what is the church among most people. Sadly, this is a grave misunderstanding. I have to say that Matthew chapter 18 verse 20, where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am in their midst, is one of the most misinterpreted Bible verses. If you had to pick 25 most misinterpreted Bible verses, I think this will feature in that. To some extent, uh, that this definition that, that uh, a church, the church is a gathering of two or three people in the name of Jesus, is not untrue. But this is also not a wholesome or complete definition of the church that Jesus is giving to us in these two passages and in other parts of the New Testament. One of the most basic principles of reading and understanding the Bible is that we just don't take one verse in isolation. We look at that verse in the context of the passage, and we look at the context, we look at the passage in the context of the entire Bible. So we've got to see this verse where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am in their midst, Jesus saying this. We have to see this sentence in the light of this entire conversation that Jesus is having with his disciples. And that's what we're going to do this morning. What I'm hoping to do this morning is to look at all the three passages we read this morning, and I'm going to identify three non-negotiable marks of a church. Three things that must exist in any local church. About 500 years ago, uh, during the Reformation, uh, the early reformers like Martin Luther, uh, John Calvin, and others, they spent a great deal of time understanding God's design for the church from the Bible. They did that because in the dark ages preceding the Reformation, sadly, the Catholic Church had completely confused the Bible. They completely missed the whole point of the Bible. And so the Reformers had to go back to God's Word to understand God's design for all of life. And one of the things they did was to understand, rediscover from God's word, the Bible, the plan for his church. And the early reformers came to a broad conclusion that there must be three marks of a church. They looked at these passages we're looking at, they looked at the entire New Testament and came with these three marks of a church. And that's what we're going to be looking at this morning. So here are the three marks of a true church. First, Faithful preaching of the gospel, the word of God, that draws us into discipleship and sends us out into mission. Second, faithful participation in baptism and communion. And third, faithful living in mutual accountability under the discipline of biblical elders. Three marks of a church. Pure doctrine, pure word of God being preached. Pure sacraments, baptism and communion being administered. And pure church life, living in mutual accountability and under the leadership of elders. These three 
must exist for us to call anything a church. This is the biblical definition of a local church. Three marks. We will look at all three this morning. The first, faithful preaching of the gospel, the word of God, that draws us into discipleship and sends us out to mission. In Matthew 16, the chapter we read, the word passage we read, Simon Peter makes a bold proclamation of faith. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus tells him on the bedrock of this faith that you have, he's speaking to all his disciples, I will build my church. So Jesus is building his church on the bedrock of our faith that he is the Christ, the son of the living God. But this faith that we have in our hearts, that Christ is the son of the living God, is built into our hearts by sitting, by reading the Bible, and by sitting under the preaching of God's word. So if Christ is building his church on the bedrock of our faith in Christ, our faith in Christ is being built by our reading of God's word and by us coming under the teaching of God's word. And I hope to revisit this aspect uh, a little later in a complete sermon in itself. What I want to do this morning is to focus on the next two marks of a church, non-negotiable marks of a church. Faithful participation in baptism and communion and faithful living in mutual accountability to one another and under the discipline of biblical elders. Now, both of these are very closely interlinked and I'm going to bunch them together in this sermon. And to really unpack and explain this, allow me to first draw us to a really hard, hard to understand sentence in both the passages that we read in Matthew 16 and Matthew 18. In both the passages, Jesus repeats the exactly the same sentence, word for word. Jesus tells, says, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you lose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Do you know what this means? It's a pretty, it's not an easy to understand verse. But understanding this verse is so important to understanding the design and the desire that Jesus Christ has for his church. So let me quickly recap both these passages, building up to this verse, this hard to understand verse. In the first passage that we read, Matthew chapter 18, Peter makes this proclamation, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And, and then Jesus says, on this I will build my church. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And next, in Matthew chapter 18, uh, one believer has sinned against the other. The believer who was sinned against goes to this believer who sinned against him in love and, and, and tries to address that. This believer doesn't listen. So he takes two or three witnesses, goes back to him. Again, he doesn't listen. And then he goes and tells the church. And this believer who sinned is still unrepentant. He's refusing to, to repent. And then Jesus says, 
treat him, let him be to you as a Gentile or a tax collector. Let him be to you as an outsider of the church. And most theologians agree this means put willful, intentional, unrepentant, deliberate sinners out of the church. Most Most theologians agree that's the interpretation. Then Jesus says in Matthew chapter 18, verse 18, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you lose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Jesus repeats this verse word for word, exactly the same word in both the passages. We saw last week that the first passage refers to the universal church and the second passage refers to the local church. And so in the context of the church, Jesus repeats both this passage, this sentence, twice. What on heaven and earth is this binding and losing all about? Uh, It's a very perplexing uh, verse. And uh, most of us, we tend to make two errors. Uh, I'm guilty of making one of these errors. I'll tell you which one later. Uh, Most of us are guilty of making two errors in the way we understand this verse. And I'm going to call these two errors the Catholic error and the charismatic error. The Catholic error and the charismatic error. Let's look at the Catholic error first. In Matthew chapter 16, verse 19, when Jesus tells Peter, I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Catholics mistakenly from this passage believe that Jesus has given the key of heaven only to Peter. And they wrongly believe that Peter first and every uh, pope who came after him holds the key to heaven. Uh, Sadly, those of the Catholic faith wrongly believe uh, that the pope or any priest appointed directly by the pope, when he makes a decision, it is binding on everyone. When they make a decision in earth, so it is in heaven. That's their understanding. And sadly, this is so wrong on so many counts because it violates the Bible in so many ways. But it is most wrong for the simple reason that when Jesus says in this passage, I will give you the keys, the word you in the original Greek is not singular, it is plural. So Jesus is not telling you, Peter. No, Jesus is telling all the disciples and everyone who would come to believe in him. Jesus is telling the universal church that what you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. What you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And therefore, all the jokes you've read online or people have told about Peter standing at the gates of heaven are theologically wrong. Sadly, Peter does not hold the key to heaven. So that is the Catholic error. The next error is a charismatic error. Uh, when I say charismatic error, please don't hear me wrong. We are not cessationist. That's not what I'm saying. So don't, don't make those assumptions. It's just this aspect. We believe God continues to give and use spiritual gifts to build his church. How that gift is used might vary. But that's another sermon. I'm not going there. We'll come back to it at some point of time in this series. The way most charismatic Christians read this verse, and that's a mistake I've made for many years in the past, 
is we see this verse in the context of spiritual warfare. We pray things like, uh, I bind the spirit of poverty, or I bind the spirit of sickness, believing that when they bind the spirit of sickness here on earth, it is bound in heaven. This also is a wrong interpretation. Look at the passage. The entire two passages. Is there anything about spiritual warfare in that passage? I mean, Jesus doesn't speak out of context. Jesus is making a point about the church. This is not about spiritual warfare. So the, the charismatic interpretation that this is spiritual warfare and we are called to bind evil spirits. Uh, spiritual warfare is real. Uh, and I'm not saying believers don't have authority to, to bind forces of darkness. I'm not saying that. I'm saying this passage is not saying that. This passage is not about spiritual warfare. So, let's come back to the first question. What on heaven and earth is this binding and losing all about? The best way to understand this, this uh, really complex verse is by seeing the two times this verse is repeated as the front door and the back door of the church. The first time Jesus says this verse, he's showing us what is the front door of the church. I'll explain this. And the second time Jesus repeats the verse, he's showing us what is the back door of the church. And I'll explain this. In the first passage, Peter proclaims his faith that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. In response, Jesus tells all the disciples that whenever they proclaim this faith, this same faith, the gospel that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, when they proclaim this faith, the doors of faith in earth will be opened. That's a great commission. He's sending his disciples out. Whenever, whoever believes in earth, Jesus is telling the disciples, whoever believes in earth because of your preaching the gospel, the doors will be opened for them in heaven also. That is what Jesus means by this passage. This is the front door of the church. The faithful preaching of the gospel by the local church on mission, by the universal church on mission. Let me substantiate this. In Romans chapter 10, verses 14 and 15, uh, the apostle Paul says, How then will they call on Christ in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? How are they to hear without someone preaching? And so here in Matthew chapter 16, Jesus is simply saying the universal church holds, the universal church on earth holds the key to heaven through the preaching of the gospel. When the universal church preaches the gospel here on earth, anyone who believes here on earth, the doors are opening in heaven for them as they were on earth. In places where the universal church is yet to preach the gospel, the doors of heaven are shut as the doors in earth are shut. 
And so in this first instance, when Jesus talks about the binding and loosing, the binding and loosing refers to the opening and closing of the front door of the church. All built on this faith that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. When we as faithful followers of Christ, when we as believers go and proclaim this faith to whoever hears and believes by the work of the Holy Spirit in them, the, earth, the doors in heaven are being opened for them as the doors on earth are being opened. So this binding and loosing is essentially the opening and the door, closing of the doors to the kingdom of God through the preaching of the gospel by the church. That's the first time Jesus uses this verse, binding and loosing. And that's a con- in the context of the front door of the church. The second time Jesus uses this verse is in the context of the back door of the church. Let's look at the context of the second passage again. Jesus says that whenever a deliberate and unrepentant sinner refuses to submit to the godly discipline exercised by the church in full accordance with God's word, put him out of the church. This is the back door of the church through godly discipline exercised in full alignment with God's word by biblically qualified elders. We can see from this passage that Jesus is calling the local church and godly elders and all members of the local church to exercise godly discipline in full alignment with the whole word of God. Please don't freak out when I talk about church discipline. It's it's a biblical truth that is sadly not talked about much. And this this descending out of someone from the church is a a rare, rare occurrence. So if you you miss Sundays, two Sundays, don't worry. Nobody's throwing you out of the the church. And we're going to have a time of Q&A in which you have questions of church discipline. We'll be very happy to answer that. And right after the service, I'm also going to send a WhatsApp message with some resources, as I sent last week. Uh, and one of the articles, three, I'm sending you three articles for reading, follow-up reading after the sermon. One of the articles is a good, wholesome explanation of church discipline. So, so don't freak out when we talk about uh, church discipline. Members of the local church must be mutually accountable to one another and must submit to the discipline of the church led by godly, biblical biblically qualified elders who do not abuse authority or who do not abandon authority. Mutual accountability to one another and godly discipline is a non-negotiable mark of the local church. Where there is no mutual accountability and where there is no godly discipline, there is no local church. If you look at the two passages and in the context, especially in the second passage, it's so clear that Jesus is saying, talking about the back door through ch- of the church through church discipline. Now do you see why a mere gathering of two, three people in the name of Jesus does not make a church? There has to be mutual accountability. It's not just we come together whenever we want to. Uh, I'm not accountable to you. you don't, you're not accountable to me. We're going to pray fervently 
but don't correct me of my sin, don't hold me accountable, I won't hold you accountable. Uh, we have no authority over each other. Uh, you do as you please, I do as we please, but we'll come together to pray and worship. That is not the church. That is not the biblical definition of the church. Again, the way I have explained and, and interpreted these two verses is not my interpretation. Um, I shared earlier, this is the hardest sermon series that I've ever preached in the last 10 years. And so I read at least six or seven commentaries written by people from different backgrounds to understand what this was really mean. And they are all in agreement with the interpretation that I've shared with you this morning. So this is not my own interpretation. Now let me show you how this binding and loosing that Jesus is talking about is deeply connected to baptism and communion and church discipline, the second and the third marks of a true church. Give me a minute. The former U.S. president, Donald Trump, is a controversial person. He is the only joke that I have in my sermon, sadly. He's a very controversial person. Uh, maybe not so much here in, the U in India, but in the U.S. he's very controversial. He has publicly claimed to be a practicing Christian. But many in the U.S. say that this is just vote bank politics. Uh, they argue that his life and his actions do not reflect true faith in Christ. At one point of time, uh, during the earlier presidential campaign, there was this huge debate among Christians in the U.S. Is Donald Trump really a Christian or not? Is Donald Trump really a Christian or not? Uh, at the peak of this debate, the first campaign, when, election, when Trump won the election, before the election, during the campaign, when this debate was raging fiercely, Aji and I happened to be in New York City, and we were walking through, my, through uh, Times Square, close to Times Square, and we saw a homeless man. Uh, in the U.S., you don't call them beggars. You call them homeless people. Uh, 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 there was a homeless man sitting on the road, obviously begging, uh, and he had a hoarding behind him. It basically said, give me one dollar or I'm voting for Trump. <laughs> you know, there was this huge debate. Is Trump really Christian or not? The, the entire nation, the nation wanted to know to borrow the words of an anchor. The nation wanted to know, is Trump a Christian or not? Royston is missing today. He used to work with this, with the person who knows all the nation, what all the nation wants to know. So at the peak of this debate, is Trump Christian or not? At the peak of this debate, a man named, uh, a pastor named Eric Raymond, a pastor in Boston, uh, he wrote a blog on the Gospel Coalition, and the blog was titled, Politics, Church Membership, and Me. Politics, Church Membership, and Me. And it was a very timely blog, and it was a very insightful blog. I'll, I'll share the link to the blog as well. In the blog, Eric Raymond took Matthew 16 and took Matthew 18, the very same verse of binding and loosing, and he based his entire blog on this verse. He says, everybody wants to know whether Trump is a Christian or not. And he answered that question in the blog by saying, 
is there a group of believers a local church that stands behind trump and says we vouch for him he is a believer and eric raymond went on to write in his blog if a true bible believing local church that that trump belongs to affirms that trump is a christian he is a christian raymond went on to write if a local church does not vouch this trump is not a christian and there is great biblical truth in this whether through the front door of church membership or through the back door of church discipline only only the local church can examine whether a person's faith is real authentic or not let me bring this to our hearts this is not just about trump it's about each and every one of us let me bring this to our hearts the local church this gathering here today is called by christ and it is empowered by christ to test and judge whether the faith of every believer is genuine you heard me right let me repeat that and i'm going to unpack that i want this to really sink in the local church all of us together not one person the local church all of us together is called by christ is commissioned by christ to test and judge whether the faith of every believer here including my own is genuine or not let me explain this you see when a church baptizes anyone anyone the elders of the church are saying we have judged this person's faith and we vouch he or she is a believer and the entire church agrees with the elders in affirming that the person being baptized is a believer you see the elders and the church are judging the faith of the believer if the elders and the church do not judge the faith and pronounce it as genuine he or she cannot be baptized baptism is only for believers and that is why at new city all of our baptisms are part of the worship service because what the elders judge we want the church to affirm and what the church loses on earth is loosed in heaven the doors of heaven what the church when the church opens the doors of heaven here on earth through baptism and confession of the faith of the believer the doors of heaven are opened if the church decides you are not a believer yet we cannot baptize you the doors that are shut on earth are shut in heaven that's the meaning of this verse it's not the authority doesn't rest with one pope or one pastor it it, it rests with the eldership and it rests with the body the local body the local church this is beautiful i mean if you really understand the implications of it stay with me here i'm about to bring to bear on each of you the weight of responsibility that christ has given us as a church i haven't felt this weight before 
and I'm about to bring this weight to bear on you. Hear me out. I have more to say on this. It is not only in baptism, but also in communion that God is calling the elders and the entire local church to judge the faith of every believer. Not only in baptism, but in communion, Christ is calling the entire church to judge the faith of every believer. We all agree that the Lord's Supper or communion is only for believers. We're in agreement on that, right? The, the bread that represents the body of Christ, the cup that represents the blood of Christ, is open, the table, the Lord's Supper is open to only to believers, people who profess without a doubt that they are sinners and they need the grace of Christ to save them. And that Christ is the only way, the way, the truth, and the life. No other God but Christ. No other Savior but Christ. No other salvation but through Christ. And so we all agree that the Lord's Supper or communion is only for believers. This means that every Sunday, the elders of a local church and the entire church is called by God, called and commissioned by Christ to judge the faith of every believer who's participating in communion. You and I have been commissioned by Christ. If someone who does not believe in Christ is partake in communion, do we not have the responsibility to lovingly tell that person this is meaningful only when you believe in Christ? Do you have the responsibility? Or is it only with the pastors and elders? We have the responsibility, right? So the church is called to judge. Let me go on. Going back to Matthew chapter 18, binding and loosing. One believer has sinned against the other and is unrepentant, is refusing to repent. Jesus says that if there is a deliberate, repeated, and unrepentant sinner among us, we, the local church, led by godly elders, have the God-given authority and responsibility to lovingly call him or her to repentance. And if he or she does not repent, we have the godly responsibility to, to lovingly call him or her to abstain from communion till that repentance happens. Look at the familiar communion passage, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 9. Verse 29, it says, For anyone who eats and drinks the Lord's Supper without discerning the body drinks judgment on himself. And discerning the body here does not mean discerning Christ. Discerning the body here means in the context of the local church, discern, look around, look around the members who are taking communion with you. It says, discerning the body here in the context of the local church means to be mindful, to love, and to lovingly watch over brothers and sisters in Christ. This simply means that when you take communion in New City or in any local church, God is calling you to lovingly watch over the faith of other brothers and sisters and God is calling you to allow others, 
other brothers and sisters to watch over your faith as we all partake in communion together. In Colossians chapter 3 verse 16, the Apostle Paul calls us not only to watch over each other, but he calls us to lovingly and gently admonish one another. Those are the exact words. Admonish one another. Admonish is not a soft word. You can't dress up that word. We're called to admonish one another when any of us slip up. And so if you notice that any brother or sister has, has not uh, been gathering to worship Jesus as the local church for, for five weeks, and you, you're called. You're accountable. God is going to hold you accountable. He's going to hold me accountable. He's going to hold us accountable to lovingly pursue them with the grace of Christ Jesus. Now do you see how the two marks, the second two marks of a church, baptism and communion and church discipline are so closely linked? Church, the local church is not a place where we come and, and uh, participate in worship and listen to the sermon and go and live our own lives. Just a mere gathering does not make a local church. The gathering in the name of Christ becomes a local church only when the sacraments, baptism and communion, are administered in a biblical manner in a way where there is mutual accountability of one believer to another and submission to godly eldership. Let me tie all of this together now by looking at the third passage we read this morning. This is from Acts chapter 2, verse 41 and 42. And I want to show us from this passage that when the early church was birthed, this is how they lived. This is how the early church lived, by observing these three non-negotiable marks of a true church. On the day of Pentecost, after the ascension of Christ Jesus, Peter preaches a sermon, and you know, thousands, three thousand people, I think, if I remember right, came come to faith. And this verse that I'm reading is immediately after that. Uh, Acts chapter 2, verses 41 to 42. So those who received his word, the preaching of God's word by Peter, that's the first mark of a true church. Those who received his word were baptized. Second mark. And there were added that day 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles', apostles teaching, the fellowship, and the breaking of bread and prayers. So look at this. The apostles' teaching and Peter preaching the God, the God's word is the first mark. Faithful preaching of the whole gospel, the whole word of God, in a way that draws us to discipleship and sends us out to mission. First mark, being lived out here. They were baptized. Those who believed were baptized. The front door to the church, the front door to heaven. They were baptized. They were included into the church. And they participated in communion. Ongoing renewal of their faith in Christ Jesus by participating in communion. The second mark. Third was fellowship. And we know this fellowship is not like going to a club and hanging out. We know that there was discipline in the early church. Do you remember Ananias and Sapphira? Thank God that kind of discipline doesn't happen anymore in the church. Right? There was church discipline. Fellowship is not, um, I feel good hanging out with these people. 
It must include that, but it is not limited to that. These people you so love hanging out with you, who, who you love belonging to, they must also correct you in love. Gently, always in love, never speaking a harsh word, but lovingly, with humility, we must correct one another. We must exhort one another. We must love one another. We must serve one another. And as Paul says in Colossians 3.16, we must also admonish one another. You see, then it is a church. A bunch of cool dudes hanging together is not church. Even if they may sit under the teaching of Christ. If you sit under the teaching of Christ, there's no way they cannot be disciplined. Good, godly church discipline and mutual accountability among members. So you see in the early church that the three marks are being fulfilled. So the early reformers, uh, they got together and wrote what is called the Belgic Confession. Uh, we don't read much of those these days because it was written almost 400 years ago and the language is not easy to understand. So the Belgic Confession and many other confessions, the Westminster Confession, for example, are beautiful statements of doctrine, concise statements of the doctrine. The entire Bible distills together to beautiful doctrine. The Belgic Confession affirms these three marks of the true church that you're looking at, we are looking at this morning. Now tell me, if two or three people are gathered together in a coffee shop in the name of Jesus, is that a church? What must be, how must, how must we discern? How must we discern? Some of us may move out of New City Maybe you'll go to another city, or maybe you may not flourish here, and you might want to, to move to another church, and it happens. No church is perfect. No church is good for everyone. It's, it happens. Or some of you may be looking for a church. Maybe you're checking your city out. And so here are three ways you must discern whenever you look for a church to belong to. Three things. Same three things, whether three people meeting in a coffee shop is a church or not. Three things. Is there faithful preaching of God's word? Is there faithful participation in baptism in communion? Is there mutual accountability and godly discipline by biblically qualified elders? If these three things are present in the coffee shop or in the pub or in your home, it is a local church. You don't need a hall to be the local church. If all these three are met and fulfilled in a coffee shop or in a home, it is a local church. If these three are not fulfilled, where two or three are gathered in a coffee shop or a pub, it is not a local church. Yes, the local church is a gathering, but the local church is so much more than a mere gathering. The local church is the whole life living in mutual accountability under the godly authority and godly discipline of biblically qualified elders. One of the sermons in the series is going to be, who is an elder? What are the biblical qualifications? Who can we accept and receive and submit to as an elder? And who can we not submit to as an elder? That's a separate sermon in itself. It's coming in the series. God's design for your discipleship and mine is that we must, be, we must all be discipled in the environment of God's word being preached, communion and baptism being administered faithfully, and an environment of mutual accountability and discipline. True biblical discipleship cannot happen in the absence of all three. 
it is not God's design. It is not the design of Jesus Christ for our discipleship. If these three are, any of these three are absent. Now, a simple application. When a parachurch organization says we will disciple people, we exist to disciple people, it is incomplete because baptism and communion and mutual accountability and discipline is missing. See, discipling, discipleship by a parachurch organization can be good, can be helpful, it's not wrong, but it can never be complete in God's design. It must complement the church. It must work together with the church. So any parachurch that's distinct from the church and says we are in the business of discipleship, that's not biblical discipleship. Because even though preaching of God's word may be present, it's not complete because there's no communion and baptism. There's no mutual accountability to one another. There's no discipline. So whether it is a gospel coalition or city to city or paracleo or EU, they're all wonderful organizations. I work closely with many of the organizations I just named. But they can and they should never, never, never replace the local church in your discipleship and mine. These are the three non-negotiable marks of a true church. Let me close with one thought. Did Jesus Christ come at all of his life to death on the cross. Did he do that? So that we may live our lives with no commitment to each other in the local church. Or did Jesus commit all of his life to death on the cross so that we may mirror the commitment that he showed to us by the commitment and the sharing of our lives and mutual accountability that we show to brothers and sisters in the local church. You see, which is why we must all belong to one local church. Because how can we demonstrate this kind of commitment if you don't see each other frequently? In the lives we live, even if we see each other on Sundays, it's so hard to be truly committed and accountable to one another. We must belong to a local church. There is no true belonging without commitment. You know, I shared this in the first sermon. We are a generation with longs for belonging. But we are afraid of commitment. Only the broken body of Christ Jesus, only the shed blood of Christ Jesus, the Son of God, can give us the power to overcome our fear of commitment. And as Christ gave himself for us, only the gospel by the Holy Spirit can, can free us to joyfully give all of ourselves to one another as Christ gave all of himself for all of us. Let's pray.
Father, we worship you, Lord. Lord, by faith, as a local church, we receive your word, which says whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. We receive that by faith. We receive that responsibility today, Lord. By faith, we receive the responsibility of the front door and back door, of the church being the front door and back door of God's kingdom. We receive that responsibility as a local church by faith. Knowing fully well that apart from the grace of God, apart from the grace of Christ, we cannot fulfill this responsibility. So every one of us and myself first, I repent, Lord. And we repent together. Forgive us. Forgive us, for we have taken the, your church, your body, Lord Jesus, your bride, Lord Jesus. We have taken it too lightly. I have failed in, in teaching the truth of your church for 10 years. Forgive us. We know that Therefore, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You're not going to reject us in our sin. You're going to forgive us and you're going to give us the power to be transformed as the church. And we believe in faith. You're going to help us to grow in living out your desire, Lord Jesus, and your design for your local church. Thank you. We worship you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.